Well, that was wonderful, wonderful. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the text written on the back of the insert. And the outline for this morning's message is there as well, if you want to follow along. Luke chapter 14. And this morning, as we begin the 14th chapter of Luke, we'll begin um, a section that really, we're only going to deal with half of it this morning. And so when we read it this morning, I want to read all of verses 1 through 25, even though we'll only be going through verse 11 this morning. It's one event, and even more than that, all of Luke chapter 14 itself ties together very tightly. So um, I'm going to read now Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. And they'll begin our study of verses 1 through 12. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him. And sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. But at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, 
none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That's the, the unit. It all takes place in the house of a Pharisee. It all takes place during a, a dinner on a Sabbath day. And we'll look at the first half of this this morning, but I want you to see the structure. What happens is Jesus performs a miracle. He's tested. He performs a miracle. He heals the man with dropsy. And then, I want you to notice the structure. He notices the guests and he speaks to them. And the, and the pattern is exactly the same pattern of his speech to the host. It takes the form of first, when you da 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 da, da do not da 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 da, lest, but when you do this, then you will because or for. So, so he gives them both instruction. You can see that clearly. Verse 8, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast. Versus verse 10, when you are, when you, no, not verse 10, verse 12, when you give a dinner, then do not, do not, lest, lest. But so that he has instructions to both of them, and Luke lays them out in parallel form. So Jesus has a word for the guests, Jesus has a word for the host, and then um, responding to the statement of the man who says, blessed is it to eat bread in the kingdom, he has a word for them all. It's a similar word, as you can see to what we studied last week, about, about Israel being shut out of the kingdom, Israel, um, the tree being cut down, being forsaken. So we'll begin this morning, and, and the way I'm framing this is Jesus, guest and Lord of the banquet. On the one hand, he is the guest of this dinner, right? He's showing up as the guest. It's not his house, it's not his meal. Yet very quickly he takes charge, and in the final and greatest parable, clearly he, God, is the one throwing the banquet, is the one throwing the wedding feast. And so Jesus is both the guest and the Lord of the banquet. So as we approach this text, I... When I first started studying this, I wrestled over its placement. Now, if you remember, Luke told us all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time, to write an orderly account for you. Luke has stated he's ordered his material intentionally. He's given thought and consideration. It's not haphazard. And yet, as I'm reading this account of this healing, it seems awfully familiar, doesn't it? Isn't something very similar to this happen in chapter 13? I mean, notice, it's a Sabbath day. Jesus sees, behold, a sick person back in chapter 13. It was the woman with the disabling spirit. Verse 11, and behold, there's a woman who had a disabling spirit. And then the pattern is exact. Jesus, before healing the person, asks a question which his opponents do not or cannot answer. He then heals the person, and then he gives another example, citing an ox or a donkey. And in both instances here, verse 6, they could not reply to these things. And back in chapter 13, on verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. So why on earth does Luke have back-to-back Sabbath controversies that are so similar? I mean, I don't think it's accidental. I don't think it's, it's unintentional. So what's, what's the purpose of this? And the, the next question I had as I was approaching this is, given the severity of the judgment with which chapter 13 ends, remember that, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house 
is forsaken. Literally, your house is left to you. You're on your own. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'd think, this is it. This is the end. And now he's in a Pharisee's house. What, what do we make of that? Which raises even another question. What on earth is Jesus doing being invited here? Remember, the last time we left the Pharisees, at the end of chapter 11, go back, the end of chapter 11, verses 53 and 54, we see the, the conflict between them and Jesus has reached a new escalation. It is, is greater than it has been before. Jesus has just blasted into them at the end of chapter 11. And Jesus, another dinner at a Pharisee's house, and we saw verse 42, woe to you Pharisees, verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, verse 44, woe to you, verse 46, woe to you lawyers, verse 47, woe to you, verse 52, woe to you lawyers. I mean, he gave them both barrels. And as a result, 53 and 54, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So they are now on the hunt. This is hunting language. The Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers, are on a, on a hunt for Jesus. And Jesus, for his part, is now publicly speaking against them. So he goes from directly rebuking them to 12.1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, his public teaching, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He's publicly calling them hypocrites. So, so the sides have escalated. The conflict has heightened why on earth would he be invited to this Pharisee's house, and why on earth would he go? It's interesting. Well, let me try to answer some of those questions I've raised about the context before we go in. First, why does Luke include this here? I, I want to suggest a couple reasons. First, despite the fact that Jesus has prophetically announced Israel's future, they will reject their Messiah, and they will be forsaken by God until they repent and turn and accept Jesus as their Messiah, despite that fact, and he'll repeat something very similar to that in Luke 21, Jesus is still graciously giving them every chance, every opportunity, every invitation to change their mind, to turn, to return, to come to him in faith. So he knows the way it's going to end, but just because he knows the way it's going to end doesn't mean he's done with them. Notice the grace and the mercy of our Lord. Also, there's a sense in which his continuing to spend time with the Pharisees provokes and reveals what's in their hearts. And one of the things Luke wants us to see is what is it about the nation of Israel's leaders and religious leaders in particular that was so repulsive to Jesus, that, that created this conflict. And we're going to see new aspects of the Pharisees, and specifically their love for honor and respect and seats of honor. Now, Jesus has already mentioned this back in chapter 11, but we're going to see it clearly here. These are people who later we're going to hear in Luke are obsessed with money. They're concerned with money. They're concerned with honor. They're concerned with respect. Those are the types of things that Jesus has already warned his disciples will keep them from following him. I think another reason Luke includes this is remember, when Jesus is ultimately charged by um, the Israelites, no charges stick, right? Herod and Pilate both say we find no fault with him. So here's another encounter, not just with a Pharisee, but with the chief, a leader 
and the lawyers are present. If, if Jesus has done anything wrong, if he's committed any sin, if he's guilty of anything, surely these people could indict him. And what do we see in verse six? They could not reply to these things. So Luke delights in showing us our Lord vindicating himself in front of them, that they have nothing credible to say. They had every opportunity to indict him. They had every opportunity to bring a charge. We were told in verse one, they're watching him carefully. They're trying to get him. Do they? No. Because this is the sinless son of God. This is the sinless son of God. Okay, so that's, I think, what its placement here it is for so why, why would this Pharisee invite Jesus? Because you read some commentaries and they're suggesting Luke made this up, this never would have happened. I, I think that's kind of a low view of scripture and it's not even thinking that carefully. Jesus is, we've been told, growing in following. Even as the people are beginning to claim he's working through demonic power, we were, began, in fact, right? Chapter 12, we saw that. When so many thousands of people had gathered that they were trampling on one another. He's a celebrity, and we all know that if you can get a celebrity to your house, there's a certain amount of honor, there's a certain amount of prestige attributed. So even though they're his enemies, this, this ruler of the Pharisees has good reason to invite Jesus. Also, because it's a Sabbath, it's entirely likely that Jesus has just taught in the synagogues. We know that was his custom. And we also know from chapter 13 that even as he heads to Jerusalem, he has not ceased from this custom. What does Jesus regularly do? On the Sabbath, he goes to the local synagogue, the local, the local house of Torah, and he teaches. So I'd assume Jesus has just been teaching publicly. It's not absolutely certain, but I think it's the most likely result. So here is this famous rabbi with thousands upon thousands of people following him and, and trying to press to get in. And this, this leader of the Pharisees invites him over for dinner. Another reason I think he does, and the text gives us this, is to trap him. In fact, that's your first blank. Jesus attends a meal that is really a trap. It's really a trap. And I've, got, I've gotten ahead. You missed really the first blank, didn't I? Which is this first section I want to call grace for the drowning. Grace for the drowning. As we look at first the healing and then the first parable. Grace for the drowning. So I think that explains why Jesus would be invited. After all, he's a, he's a religious pilgrim on his way to Jerusalem. And in the Middle East, hospitality is a big deal. So what we've got here is a, is a more than just a simple meal. They're reclining at table. There are seats of honor, we're knowing. This is probably a somewhat ornate deal. Most of it probably prepared the day before the Sabbath, so there wouldn't be, there'd be minimal work on the Sabbath. This is probably a nice, fancy meal that Jesus is going to. And literally, in verse 1, he went in to eat bread. Um, in the house of the ruler, which is significant because it links up with verse 15, with those who eat bread in the kingdom. So Jesus attends a meal that is really a trap. He attends a meal that is really a trap. They, they invite him, but what are they doing? They're looking to get him. It's consistent with what we saw. Uh, another thing this demonstrates is, is, will this tree bear any fruit? Will there be any difference? Will there be any growth or change? Nope. They're doing the same thing now that they were doing back at the end of chapter 11, trying to trap him. And then Jesus encounters a man with dropsy. Um, you may not know what dropsy is. Here's a brief description. From a biomedical point of view, dropsy, an almost obsolete term for generalized edema, refers to bodily swelling due to an excess of fluid. Okay, so your body cavities can fill up with fluid 
not a disease itself, dropsy is an indication of malfunctioning in the body, especially congestive heart failure or kidney disease. So the dropsy is the symptom. There's a swelling with water and fluid of the body, which indicates some of the internal organs are having problems. Okay? It, in and of itself, isn't life-threatening, even though it can reference something that ultimately, like congestive heart failure, can lead someone to death. Now, what's this guy doing here? Um, why, why is he here? And, and the way Luke tells it, it's immediate. We know that they haven't even sat down to eat yet because in verse 7, Jesus takes notice of how they're choosing their chairs. So this is the very beginning of the meal. They're just showing up. People haven't even fully sat down yet. I think the most likely option is he's a plant. He was invited by the Pharisee to, is part of this trap they're looking to get him. It's, it's possible he's a Pharisee himself, a Pharisee with dropsy. It's also possible he just wandered in. We have that example of that woman who found her way into um, the, the dinner who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. But most likely, I think, he's a plant. Another reason for that is after Jesus heals him, Jesus sends him home, as if Jesus recognizes he, he shouldn't be here either. I don't think he's just one of the dinner guests. It's possible he either has wandered in or more likely, fitting the context, he's been specifically invited, placed here so they can trap Jesus, see what he will do. Will he heal this man on the Sabbath? Okay? Jesus encounters a man with dropsy. And then Jesus, that leads Jesus to ask the lawyers and Pharisees a question. And, and again, suggesting this is a plant, he, he gets, I think, that they, they've, they've created this scenario. Because look how verse... Um, three begins. Jesus responds to the lawyers and Pharisees. Well, they didn't say anything, did they? What's he responding to? Well, he's responding, I think, to the scenario. And he recognizes the lawyers and the Pharisees stand behind it. And he asks them a question. Simple question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? This isn't a complicated theology question. This isn't nuanced. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they don't say anything, which I think is intentional, because I want you to notice the contrast in verse 4 between they remain silent and what Luke says in verse 6, they could not reply. So I don't think in the first instance he's silenced them because they don't know the answer. They have to be pretty bad students of Scripture to not know the answer to this question. They're remaining silent, again, furthering in the trap. Let's not say anything to dissuade Jesus from acting. We know what they think. Go back to chapter 13. The, the, the ruler of the synagogue there tells us the party line, right? Um, verse 14 of chapter 13. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on the, one of those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So don't, don't come and be healed on the Sabbath. There's six other days in the week. Do it then. That's the party line. That's the pharisaical view. So that's, I would assume, their position. But they're not going to say that. They're going to wait and see what Jesus does. They're trying to be sly. Now, they're going to get caught in their own net. They're going to get caught in their own trap. But that's the setup. They're not, this is, these are not honest people. This is not an honest situation. This is a trap. They know perfectly well what they think the answer to that question is. They don't say anything. Jesus is aware of that. So we ask him, is it lawful to heal? Now, if you go back to the Sabbath command in Exodus 20, it simply says, don't do your normal work on the Sabbath. 
There's no, there's no prohibition against healing. So I think in a general sense, if you're a doctor in Israel, you wouldn't be having office hours normally on the Sabbath. And if, if you needed the checkup, you wouldn't be scheduling it for the Sabbath. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't going to get paid. This guy hasn't made an appointment. This is almost a random encounter. This is spontaneous charity and love and compassion. And as we're going to see, it's not as though Jesus does much work. So, behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, this swelling, it's clear something's wrong with his health, it's clear his internal organs are in trouble. And so Jesus, knowing it's a trap, responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So then Jesus acts. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. I love this. It's so assumed Jesus has this power by this point in Luke's gospel. He just took him Possibly even wrapping his arms around him. The word for take is to take hold of, took hold of him, and, and healed his internal organs. Maybe he got a new, new liver or a healed liver or kidneys or a heart. And the fluid's gone. I mean, this is, this is a significant miracle. And he sends him on his way. He recognizes he's out of place here. He recognizes he's not a dinner guest. This is either a trap or he's somebody who wandered in. He sends him away. Notice the compassion of our Lord, the power of our Lord over disease. He took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And then he turns back to his dinner party, the people there. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? He gets ahead of them, and presumably they're about to pounce and charge him with sin. But before they can do that, he turns to them and, and asks them this question. And it's kind of obvious. If your ox falls into a well, you don't say, well, tread water, hope you can make it, we'll come back tomorrow. You get them out. Why? Oxes are expensive. Your livelihood depends on oxes. It might be the equivalent of your car. This is what you use to plow your field. This is what you use to get your work done, to thresh your grain. You don't, you don't let an ox die any more than you just leave your car and, and come back in a couple of days and hope it's there when you left it on the side of the road. And then more to the point, your own child. I mean, can you imagine one of these Pharisees, their son falls in a well, hope you can tread water long enough till the Sabbath is done. Keep at it. Of course not. Of course not. And there's even implications in the law itself to understand the priority. For such things. I mean, listen to Deuteronomy um, 22, 3 to 4. You should do the same for your neighbors, talking about with his donkey or his garment or anything lost from your brothers, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him lift them up again. In other words, what the law recognizes is such a thing as exigency. What exigency is, is immediate need. In common, in common parlance, uh, a police officer normally would need authorization to enter your home, uh, a warrant or something. But if he hears someone screaming for help, because the exigency, our law, would allow him to enter, here is an immediate need. This man is literally drowning in his own body fluids. That's, that's the connection to the analogy of a donkey in a well or a boy in a well. His, his body is filling up with fluid, literally drowning this man. And that's the picture how, how can Jesus not have compassion on his immediate need in the same way that they'd have compassion on their donkey or their son? They're hypocrites. They're legalists. And notice, they could not reply to these things. They're silenced. And Jesus has just defeated them. This is a trap. He walks right in knowing what it is. 
knows full well what's going on. You, you put this guy here, huh? Okay, I'll answer you. I'll ask you a question. They've got nothing to say, and they're going to wait and see. And then he acts, and he heals. And, and it's not as though he's doing work. He doesn't cast an elaborate spell. He just takes hold of the man, and he's healed. doesn't receive any money, unlike many of today's modern healers. And he sends them on his way. And then he points back at them, and he asks them one simple question, and they're silenced. They're silenced. Now, what's ironic here is this. Who are the teachers of Israel? It's the Pharisees and the lawyers and scribes. The scribes and the lawyers primarily focus on interpretation of the Torah. And then the Pharisees made sure the people observed it. They modeled it. Here are the teachers of Israel. This is a a leader of the Pharisees, possibly a member of the Sanhedrin. Here are Israel's teachers. And Jesus has silenced them, which is what sets the way for what follows. He's a guest but he's also a rabbi. And he's asked them two questions. One, they don't answer. The second, they can't answer. So now Jesus is going to step up as the teacher. And so point two, now we have teaching for the teachers. Teaching for the teachers. There's some irony here, comic irony. What were they doing in verse one? They were watching him carefully trying to get him. He walks right into the trap, knowing full well what he's doing. It gets sprung and it doesn't get him. It gets them. Now Jesus is going to notice something about them. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. So they're, they're looking to get him. Now here Jesus notices something about them. They've already had nothing to say. The teachers of Israel have had nothing to say, so Jesus will now instruct them. And so this parable follows three points. First, observation. Observation. What Jesus notices is how they chose the places of honor. So what you've got is, and you can imagine this, that you've got this dinner party, and everyone, and somewhat formal, is kind of thinking to themselves, okay, where do I fit in the social ranking in this room? Okay, that rabbi's got more, more honor than me, but surely I'm greater than... And you're trying to figure out where your seat's going to be. Because the closer you are to the host, the more honor you have. The further down the table you are, the less honor. And the last thing I want is to sit lower down the table than I have a right to sit. But I've got to do the math carefully. And so you can just, I mean, it's almost comical, picturing almost like this. Um, they're just, and, and that's what's going on. Jesus takes note of this. And he gives them instructions. So first we have observation. The guests seek seats of honor. Which, by the way, go back to 11. Jesus has already charged them with. This isn't a good thing. Chapter 11, uh, his rebuke to the Pharisees, remember? Um, in the second woe, in verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. You love the seats of honor. And sure enough, that's what they're doing. Jesus takes note of it. So observation. Then we get illustration. He gives them a parable, the parable of the wedding feast. He says to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he say, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
So the, the parable is pretty straightforward. I mean, weddings, I think Jesus chooses uh, for two reasons. One, the next parable he's about to give, the, the big one, is about a wedding feast. And second, it's probably one of the most formal occasions that they would go to. In fact, you may have been to a wedding where the seats are assigned. Certainly the, the bride and groom and their attendants are assigned seats. And sometimes beyond that, guests who've come from a faraway family tables are assigned. I've, I've been to a wedding, um, plenty of weddings, where the seating is assigned in that sense. And so there's a sense which here honor is being put on display. And Jesus tells them what not to do and what to do. What not to do and what to do. So first, he says, do not sit in the place of honor. And then he says, why? Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. You just imagine how embarrassing that is. You sit down at the wedding, you sit down in your seat, and the, uh, the, 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 the father of the bride comes and says, ah, you're sitting in someone else's seat. And by that time, all the good seats are taken, so you've got to sit at the kids' table, you know. And that's the implication. You've got to sit in the lowest seat. Well, all we got left for you is a kiddie table. You can go. You're out there in the foyer. Um, that'd be pretty embarrassing, right? And what Jesus is doing is he's simply working on the level of their own logic. Let's assume glory and honor from man is valuable. Let's assume it's, it's something to have. You guys are going about it all wrong, you say. You guys are all wondering, am I honorable enough to sit here? You don't take honor. That's the blank. You don't seek to take honor. You can't take honor. Honor has to be given. What are you supposed? What, what should you do? You allow honor to be given to you. Allow honor to be given to you. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, "Friend, move up higher." Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm going to assume your logic. I'm going to assume your values for a moment. Let's assume you want honor from man. You're going about it all wrong. You're running the risk of doing your, your honor logic and math a little off. Because that's what they've got to be doing. They've got to be figuring out, okay, I think I'm the fourth most honorable person here. So I'll grab the fourth seat from the host. Well, if you did your math wrong, if, if, or if the host has different math than you and he has someone else in greater honor than you, then someone's going to have to come and tap you on the shoulder and say, you're going to move down. No, no, no. Far better if you want honor. Take, take the low seat. Your host will say, what's he doing there? Oh, you come over here and in front of everyone you're honored. Because honor has to be given. It has to be bestowed. You can't take honor. You can't grab honor. I mean, I know Napoleon crowned himself, but I think it just illustrates how pointless it is to try to give yourself honor. Is. Um, and normally the kings are crowned by the Pope, and Napoleon took the crown out of his hands and crowned himself, and that didn't work out for him very well. Um, honor has to be given. It can't be taken. That's Jesus' point. Now, What's critical here is, is point C, the application, the application. See, if Jesus just left it here, he hasn't really said anything fundamentally new. Uh, if ver- without verse 11, we could simply view Jesus as giving them some tips for how to get honor from man. You're going about it all wrong. Here's a better strategy. In fact, one commentator says this, thus far, it is tempting to imagine that Luke is working together with the social system of Roman antiquity. 
Um, seemingly, the only thing changed thus far is the strategy by which one obtains one's objectives. The objective remains the same. Honor from my companions. Honor from my fellow men. Verse 11 changes all that. However, he writes, with verse 11, Luke narrates how Jesus moves from simply dispensing good advice to recasting the values of that social world in a significant way. On the one hand, his teaching has called into question the self-seeking agenda of his table companions, insisting that honor must be given, not taken. But more fundamentally, he now goes on to hint at a life world in which honor is measured and granted along unforeseen lines. The humble in the social world that Luke addresses usually denoted persons who are of low birth, base, and ignoble. Yet in the topsy-turvy world Jesus envisions, the humble are those that are most valued. See, what Jesus now tells him is sort of the kingdom principle. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This can't be simply be a trick. Otherwise, a really proud person could say, I know what I'm going to do because I hunger and thirst for the praise of man. I'm going to go sit at the kiddie table and just wait. You could game the system, right? Now, Jesus says, the, if you're proud, if you're going to exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You can't game the system that way. And this is a theme that has already shown up in Luke's gospel, right? Um, the, the commentator goes on to say this, evidence that for Luke, these values are already being implemented by God is readily available beginning with the disgraced Elizabeth, who in God's providence is enabled to become pregnant in spite of her old age, with Mary, whose encounter with God taught her to say, God, my Savior, has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. And more generally, in Luke's um, construal of the divine purpose, that he is to preach good news to the poor. In fact, turn back to chapter 1. This theme of, of God exalting the humble, and humbling the exalted is, is, is throughout Luke's gospel, but it, it's probably said most clearly in the Magnificat by Mary. Right? The Magnificat by Mary. Mary meets with Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's tummy, John the Baptist, leaps for joy, verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there be a fulfillment of what was spoken to by the Lord. In verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's, he's exalted Mary. Those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart, he has scattered. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel, his servant. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring, Forever. Now turn a couple pages over to Luke chapter 6. 
How does Jesus begin his great sermon in Luke, the sermon on the plain? He came down from the mountain with a series of beatitudes. This is fundamental teaching for the kingdom of God, fundamental teaching for would-be disciples. He lifted up his eyes, verse 20, on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, you know, they don't invite you to banquets, and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What Jesus is doing is he's looking at these people scurrying around like rats, trying to curry honor and favor with man. And what's their concern? You know, I might be qualified to sit in one more honorable seat, and I don't want to get chipped out of my honor, so I'm going to do the math and figure out where I'm going to sit. And first, he just tells them, you're going about it all wrong. But secondly, he tries to destroy that whole system of hungry and thirsting for honor from man. I mean, so many of us, right, are concerned, don't disrespect me, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And we're all concerned about being wronged, mistreated. How dare they treat me? Do they know who I am? My wife, by the way, will, will do that periodically. If I'm driving and someone's driving poorly, they're going slow in the fast lane or whatever, I'll say, what are they doing? And she'll say, dear, do they even know who you are? <laughs> the Lord blesses me with my wife repeatedly, <laughs> repeatedly. Do they even know, do they know who you are? <sighs> But that's the way we think, right? Because if I, if I have a right to honor, then by golly, I'm going to get it. Or else, I'm not going to let you disrespect me. I mean, we may not be as foolish as this trying to pick our seats, but how many of us are consumed with a concern that others give us the respect we deserve? And Jesus tells them, look, you're... You're running around chasing after the unimportant things. You've heard me give the illustration about, you know, you get the, uh, you get, you're the one millionth customer at Fairway and you walk in and you get to spend one minute in the money room. You remember this one? I got this from my economics professor at college. I get a lot of mileage out of it. Um, you guys are going, amen. Yeah, you do. Um, but the simple point is, you know, you get the money room. There's a table piled high with ones and a table piled high with fives and twenties and fifties. And you get a shopping bag, and you get one minute to cram as much money in that bag as you can, and the gun goes off, and all your friends are there, and you run over to the ones table, and you're just piling those ones in the bag, and all your friends, what are you doing? And you turn, and what, what's wrong with the ones? Nothing, stupid. <laughs> These people are running around, scrobbling, they're not even at the ones table, they're like the, they're at like the, the, the monopoly money table. And Jesus is saying there's real honor. That's where this is headed, by the way. These people are so consumed with honor because the next, the next instruction in chapter um, 14 is going to go to the, the, uh, the host, right? And what's Jesus going to speak along the lines of? Look, you're setting your sights too low. If all you're picking your guest list is who can invite you back, you get a reward that's here and now and it's gone. But if you invite the lame and the blind and the poor... <laughs> 
you're going to get honor and glory that doesn't fade. And then he's going to tell them the parable about God inviting them to his banquet. And can you imagine the dishonor and disrespect you show God when you're too busy with the paltry little things running around with the nickels and dimes table to come to his banquet? That, that's where this is headed. He's going to speak to them along the axis of honor, first to the guests, and then to the host, and then to all of them. So what's the, what's the rebuke and word for us? The rebuke and word for us is what's going to stop us from following Christ faithfully is if we're concerned with honor now. I want my honor now. We, we ought to be willing to humble ourselves. Charles Spurgeon said this. Let's see if I mangle the quote. Do not be bothered when th- someone thinks ill of you, for you are far worse than they could imagine. Amen? Amen? Um, in fact, that was one of the that was one of the things that, that made me chuckle. Uh, Denny Burke, who's um, on the Baptist Southern Baptist Ethics Committee, he was actually tweeted about by our president before he became president and called him a vile person. He was being interviewed, asked what he thought about that. He's like, I sing worse things about myself most Sundays. Or you can be obsessed with receiving honor. And I, I know people. I know some here are still smarting and angry over being dishonored, treated less respect than you deserve months, days, years ago. Let it go. It's the monopoly money table. Jesus gives us a principle that gets repeated over and over and over in the New Testament. If you seek to exalt yourself, God's going to squash you down. But if you'll humble yourself, if you'll abase yourself, God will exalt you. I mean, Jesus used this word for word in chapter 18. He tells the story of the, of the Pharisee and the publican. Remember the Pharisee comes up, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe and I do all these good things. And, and, and the publican, he can't even raise his fist to God. He beats his breast. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, is this one, not the Pharisee who went home justified. For, word for word, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Or put it another way, you're going to get humbled. You can either voluntarily humble yourself now, and God will lift you up, and God will vindicate you, and God in his due time will give you glory and honor. Or you can fight for and cling for honor now, and make no mistake, God will squash that down. James, he gives more grace, James 4, 6. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a frightening thought. God opposes the proud. You, you want to become filled with pride? God opposes you. He's your opponent. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to you elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud. Gives grace to the humble. Now we want grace, don't we? We need to humble ourselves. And Luke is highlighting this. I'm going to call the worship team up. Luke is highlighted for us how foolish the pursuit of glory for man is. You can just picture how foolish it is. These Pharisees trying to judge, do I dare sit in this seat? Do I... This, is, this, is, this is fighting over monopoly money. Real honor and real glory awaits from God if we will humble ourselves and follow him. So we're going to close now with a closing song, um, All Glory Be to Christ. That doesn't allow any little cap outs for us. All glory, all honor be to Christ. Please stand with me and sing.